Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Today, a classic love story from Victorian times by George Egerton. The title of the story, A Little Gray Glove. A rich man falls hook, line, and sinker in love for a mysterious married woman beside a riverbank. Their shared interest? Fly fishing. Hope you enjoy it. Yes, most fellows' book of life may be said to begin at the chapter where woman comes in, and mine did. She came in years ago, when I was a raw undergraduate. With the sober thought of retrospective analysis, I may say she was not all my fancy painted her. Indeed, now that I've come to think of it, there was no fancy about the vermeil of her cheeks, rather an artificial reality. She had her bower in the bar of the golden boar, and I was madly in love with her, seriously intent on lawful wedlock. Lucky for me, she threw me over for a neighboring pork butcher, but at the time I took it hardly, and it made me sex-shy. I was a very poor man in those days. One feels one's griefs more keenly then. One hasn't the wherewithal to buy distraction. Besides, ladies snubbed me, rather, on the rare occasions I met them. Later I fell in for a legacy, the forerunner of several. Indeed, I may say, I am beastly rich. My tastes are simple, too, and I haven't any poor relations. I believe they are of great assistance in getting rid of superfluous capital. Wish I had some. It was after the legacy that women discovered my attractions. They found that there was something superb in my plainness, before they said ugliness. Something after the style of the late Victor Emmanuel. Something infinitely more striking than mere ordinary beauty. At least so Harding told me his sister said, and she had the reputation of being a clever girl. Being an only child, I never had the opportunity other fellows had of studying the undressed side of women through familiar intercourse, say with sisters. Their most ordinary belongings were sacred to me. I had, I used to be told, ridiculous high-flown notions about them, by the way I modified those considerably on closer acquaintance. I ought to study them, nothing like a woman for developing a fellow. So I laid in a stock of books in different languages, mostly novels, in which women played title roles, in order to get up some definite data before venturing out amongst them. I can't say I derived much benefit from this course. There seemed to be as great a diversity of opinion about the female species as, let us say, about the different species of salmon and trout. My friend Ponsonby Smith, who is one of the oldest fly-fishers in the Three Kingdoms, said to me once, Take my word for it, there are only four true salmo, the salar, the truta, the fario, and the ferrex. All the rest are just varieties, subgenuses of the above. Stick to that. Some writing fellow divided all the women into goodens and badens, but as a conscientious stickler for truth, I must say that both in trout as in women, I found myself faced with most puzzling varieties that were a tantalizing blending of several qualities. I then resolved to study them on my own account. I pursued the eternal feminine in a spirit of purely scientific investigation. I knew you'd laugh skeptically at that, but it's a fact. I was impartial in my selection of subjects for observation. French, German, Spanish, as well as the home product. Nothing in petticoats escaped me. I devoted myself to the freshest ingenue as well as the experienced widow of three departed, and I may as well confess that the more I saw of her, the less I understood her. But I think they understood me. They refused to take me au sérieux. When they weren't fleecing me, 
"'They were interested in the state of my soul. "'I preferred the former. "'But all humbugged me equally, so I gave them up. "'I took to rod and gun instead. "'Pro salute animi. "'It's decidedly safer. "'I've scoured every country in the globe. "'Indeed, I can say that I have shot and fished in woods and waters "'where no other white man perhaps ever dropped a beast "'or played a fish before.' There is no life like the life of a free wanderer, and no lore like the lore one gleans in the great book of nature. But one must have freed one spirit from the taint of the town before one can even read the alphabet of its mystic meaning. What has this to do with the glove? True, not much, and yet it has a connection. It accounts for me. Well, for twelve years I have followed the impulses of the wandering spirit that dwells in me. I have seen the sun rise in Finland and gild the devil's knuckles as he sank behind the Drachensberg. I've caught the barba and the gamer yellowfish in the Veal River, taken muscalunge and black bass in Canada, thrown a fly over Guapote and Cavallo in Central American lakes, and choked the monster eels of the Mauritius with a cunningly faked-up duckling. But I've been shy as a cub at the shadow of a woman. Well, it happened last year I came back on business, another confounded legacy, end of June, too, "'just as I was off to Finland. "'But Masters Thimble and Rig, "'the highly respectable firm who took after my affairs, "'represented that I owed it to others, "'whom I kept out of their share of the legacy, "'to stay near town till affairs were wound up. "'They told me, with a view to reconcile me, perhaps, "'of a trout stream with a decent inn near it, "'an unknown stream in Kent. "'It seems a junior member of the firm is an angler. "'At least he sometimes catches pike or perch in the medway, "'some way from the stream where the trout rise in audacious security from artificial lures. "'I stipulated for a clerk to come down with any papers to be signed, "'and started at once for Victoria. "'I declined to tell the name of my find, "'firstly because the trout are the gamest little fish that ever rose to fly, "'and run to a good two pounds. "'Secondly, I have paid for all the rooms in the inn for the next year, "'and I want it to myself. "'The glove is lying on the table next to me as I write.' If it isn't in my breast pocket or under my pillow, it is in some place where I can see it. It has a delicate gray body, suede, I think they call it, with a whipping of silver round the top and a darker gray silk tag to fasten it. It's marked 5 quarter inside and has a delicious scent about it to keep off moths, I suppose. Naphtaline is better. It reminds me of a silver sedge tied on a tin hook. I startled a good landlady of the little inn. There is no village, fortunately. When I arrived with the only porter of the tiny station laden with traps. She hesitated about a private sitting room, but eventually we compromised matters, as I was willing to share it with the other visitor. I got into knickerbockers at once, collared a boy to get me worms and minnow for the morrow, and as I felt too lazy to unpack tackle, I just sat in the shiny armchair, made comfortable by the successive sitting of former occupants at the open window, and looked out. The river, not the trout stream, winds to the right, and the trees cast trembling shadows into its clear depths. The red tiles of a farm roof show between the beaches, and break the monotony of a blue sky background. A dusty wagoner is slaking his thirst with a tankard of ale. I am conscious of the strange, lonely feeling that a visit to England always gives me. Away in strange lands, even in solitary places, one doesn't feel it somehow. One is filled with the hunter's lust, bent on a kill. But at home, in the quiet country, 
"'with the smoke curling up with some fireside, "'the mowers busy laying the hay in swaths, "'and children tumbling under the trees in the orchards, "'and a girl singing as she spreads the clothes "'on a sweet briar hedge, "'amidst a scene quick with home sights and sounds. "'A strange lack creeps in "'and makes itself felt in a dull, aching way. "'Oddly enough, too, "'I had a sense of uneasiness, "'a something-going-to-happen type feeling. "'I had often experienced it "'when out alone in a great forest "'or on an unknown lake, "'and it always meant wear danger of some kind. "'But why should I feel it here? "'Yet I did, and I couldn't shake it off. "'I took to examining the room. "'It was a commonplace one of the usual type, "'but there was a work-basket on the table, "'a dainty thing, lined with blue satin. "'There was a bit of lace stretched over shiny blue linen "'with a needle sticking in it, "'such fairy work like cobweb seen from below.' "'spun from a branch against a background of sky. "'A gold thimble, too, with initials. "'Not the landlady's, I know. "'Look pretty things, too, in the basket. "'A scissors, a capital shape for fly-making, "'a little file, and some floss silk and tinsel. "'The identical color I want for a new fly I have in my head. "'One that will be a demon to kill. "'The northern devil, I mean to call him. "'Someone looks in behind me, "'and a light step passes upstairs.' I drop the basket. I don't know why. There are some reviews near it. I take up one, and I'm soon buried in an article on Tasmanian fauna. It is strange, but whenever I do know anything about a subject, I always find these writing fellows either entirely ignorant or just damned wrong. After supper, I took a stroll to see the river. It was a silver-gray evening, with just the last lemon and pink streaks of the sunset staining the sky. There had been a shower, and somehow the smell of the dust after rain mingled with the mignonette in the garden, brought back vanished scenes of small boyhood, when I caught minnows in a bottle, and dreamt of a shilling rod as happiness unattainable. I turned aside from the road in accordance with directions, and walked towards the stream. Hello! Someone before me! What a bore! The angler is hidden by an elder bush, but I can see the fly drop delicately. "'artistically, on the water. "'Fishing upstream, too. "'There's a bit of broken water there, "'and midges dance in myriads. "'A silver gleam, and the line spins out, "'and the fly falls just in the right place. "'It is growing dusk, "'but the fellow is an adept at quick, fine casting. "'I wonder what fly he has on. "'Why, he's going to try downstream now?' "'I hurry forward, and as I near him, "'I swerve to the left out of the way.' S a sudden sting in the lobe of my ear. Hey, I cry, as I find I'm caught. The tail fly is fast in it. A slight, gray-clad woman holding the rod lays it carefully down and comes towards me through the gathering dusk. My first impulse is to snap the gut and take to my heels, but I'm held by something less tangible but far more powerful than the grip of the limerick hook in my ear. I am very sorry. "'she says in a voice that matched the evening. "'It was so quiet and soft. "'But it was exceedingly stupid of you "'to come behind me like that. "'I, I didn't think you threw such a long line. "'I thought I was safe,' I stammered. "'Hold this,' she says, "'giving me a diminutive fly-book "'out of which she has taken a scissors. "'I obey meekly. "'She snips the gut. "'Have you a sharp knife? "'If I strip the hook, you can push it through.' "'It is lucky it isn't in the cartilage of your ear.' 
"'I suppose I'm an awful idiot, "'but I only handed her the knife, "'and she proceeded as calmly "'as if stripping a hook in a man's ear "'were an everyday occurrence. "'Her gown is of some soft gray stuff, "'and her gray leather belt is silver-clasped. "'Her hands are soft and cool and steady, "'but there is a rarely disturbing thrill "'in their gentle touch. "'A thought flashed through my mind "'that I had just missed that, "'a woman's voluntary tender touch, "'not a paid caress. "'All my life.' "'Now you can push it through yourself. "'I hope it won't hurt much.' "'Taking the hook, I push it through, "'and a drop of blood follows it. "'Oh!' she cries. "'But I assure her it is nothing, "'and stick the hook surreptitiously in my coat sleeve. "'Then we both laugh, "'and I look at her for the first time. "'She has a very white forehead "'with little tendrils of hair blowing round it "'under her gray cap. "'Her eyes are gray. "'I didn't see that then. "'I only saw they were steady,' "'smiling eyes that matched her mouth. "'Such a mouth! "'The most maddening mouth the man ever longed to kiss, "'above a two-pointed chin, soft as a child's. "'Indeed, the whole face looked soft in the misty light. "'I'm sorry I spoilt your sport,' I say. "'Oh, that don't matter. It's time to stop. "'I got two brace. One's a beauty. "'She's winding in her line, and I look at her basket. "'They are beauties.' One two-pounder, the rest running from a half to a pound. What fly are you using? Yellow Dunn took that one, but your assailant was a partridge spider. I sling her basket over my shoulder, she takes it as a matter of course, and we retrace our steps. I feel curiously happy as we walk toward the road. There's a novel delight in her nearness. The feel of a woman works subtly and strangely in me. The rustle of her skirt as it brushes the blackheads in the meadow grass, and the delicate perfume— "'Partly violets, partly yourself, "'that comes to me with each of her movements "'is a rare pleasure. "'I'm hardly surprised when she turns into the garden of the inn. "'I think I knew from the first that she would. "'Better bathe that ear of yours "'and put a few drops of carbolic in the water.' "'She takes the basket as she says it "'and goes into the kitchen. "'I hurry over this and go into the little sitting room. "'There is a tray with a glass of milk "'and some oaten cakes upon the table.' I'm too disturbed to sit down. I stand at the window and watch the bats flitter in the gathering moonlight, and listen with quivering nerves for her step. Perhaps she will send for the tray, and not come after all. What a fool I am to be disturbed by a gray-clad witch with a tantalizing mouth. That comes of loafing about doing nothing. I mentally darn the old fool who saved her money instead of spending it. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. I don't want it anyhow. She comes in as I fume, and I forget everything at her entrance. I push the armchair towards the table, and she sinks quietly into it, pulling the tray nearer. She has a wedding ring on, but somehow it never strikes me to wonder if she's married, or a widow, or who she may be. I am content to watch her break her biscuits. She has the prettiest hands— "'and a trick of separating her last fingers "'when she takes hold of anything. "'They remind me of white orchids I saw somewhere. "'She led me to talk about Africa, I think. "'I like to watch her eyes glow deeply in the shadow "'and then catch light as she bent forward to say something "'in her quick, responsive way. "'Long ago, when I was a girl,' she said once. "'Long ago?' I echo incredulously. "'Surely not.' "'Ah, but yes, you haven't seen me in the daylight,' "'with a soft little laugh. "'Do you know what the gypsies say? 
Never judge a woman or a ribbon by candlelight. They might have said moonlight equally well. She rises as she speaks, and I feel an overpowering wish to have her put out her hand. But she does not. She only takes the work basket and a book and says good night with an inclination of her little head. I go over and stand next to her chair. I don't like to sit on it, but I like to put my hand where her head was and fancy, if she were there, how she would look up. I woke next morning with a curious sense of pleasurable excitement. I whistled from very lightness of heart as I dressed. When I got down, I found the landlady clearing away her breakfast things. I felt disappointed and resolved to be down earlier in the future. I didn't feel inclined to try the minnow. I put them in a tub in the yard and tried to read and listen for her step. I dined alone. The day dragged terribly. I did not like to ask about her. I had a notion she might not like it. I spent the evening on the river. I might have filled a good basket, but I let the beggars rest. After all, I'd caught fish enough to stock all the rivers in Great Britain. There are other things than trout in the world. I sit and smoke a pipe where she caught me last night. If I half close my eyes, I can see hers and her mouth in the smoke. That is one of the curious charms of Backy. It helps to reproduce brain pictures. After a bit, I think perhaps she has leapt. I get quite feverish at the thought and hasten back. I must ask. I look up at the windows as I pass. There is surely a gleam of white. I throw down my traps and hasten up. She is leaning with her arms on the window ledge, staring out into the gloom. I could swear I caught a suppressed sob as I entered. I cough, and she turns quickly and bows slightly. A bonnet and gloves and lace affair and a lot of papers are lying on the table. I'm awfully afraid she is going. I say, Please don't let me drive you away. It is so early yet. I half expected to see you on the river. Nothing so pleasant. I've been uptown. The tears have certainly got into her voice. All day. It was so hot and dusty. I am tired out. A little servant brings in the lamp and tray with a bottle of lemonade. The mistress hasn't any lemons, ma'am. Will this do? Yes, she says wearily. She's shading her eyes with her hand. Anything. I'm fearfully thirsty. Something more than tiredness was calling up those lines in her face. Well, ten days passed. Sometimes we met at breakfast, sometimes at supper. Sometimes we fished together or sat in a straggling orchard and talked. She neither avoided me nor sought me. She is the most charming mixture of child and woman I ever met. She is a dual creature. Now I never met that in a man. When she is here without getting a letter in the morning or going to town, she seems like a girl. She runs about in her gray gown and little cap and laughs and seems to throw off all thought like an irresponsible child. She is eager to fish or pick gooseberries and eat them daintily or sit under the trees and talk. But when she goes to town, I notice she always goes when she gets a lawyer's letter. There's no mistake in the envelope. She comes home tired and haggard looking, an old woman of 35. I wonder why it takes her, even with her elasticity of temperament, nearly a day to get young again. I hate her to go to town. It is extraordinary how I miss her. I can't recall when she is absent her saying anything very wonderful, but she converses all the time. She has a gracious way of filling the place with herself. There is an entertaining quality in her very presence. We had one rainy afternoon. She tied me some flies. I shan't use any of them. I watched the lights in her hair as she moved. 
"'It is quite golden in some places, "'and she has a tiny mole near her left ear "'and another on her left wrist. "'On the eleventh day she got a letter, "'but she didn't go to town. "'She stayed up in her room all day. Twenty times I felt inclined to send her a line, "'but I had no excuse. "'I heard the landlady say as I passed the kitchen window, "'Poor dear, I'm sorry to lose her.' "'Lose her? I should think not.' "'It has come to this with me "'that I don't care to face my future without her, "'and yet I know nothing about her, "'not even if she's a free woman. "'I shall find that out the next time I see her. "'In the evening I catch a glimpse of her gown in the orchard, "'and I follow her. "'We sit down near the river. "'Her left hand is lying gloveless next to me in the grass. "'Do you think from what you've seen of me "'that I would ask a question out of mere impertinent curiosity?' "'She starts. "'No, I do not.' I take up her hand and touch the ring. Tell me, does this bind you to anyone? I am conscious of a buzzing in my ears and a dancing blur of water and sky and trees. As I wait, it seems to me an hour, for her reply. I felt the same sensation once before, when I got drawn into some rapids and had an awfully narrow shave. But of that, that's another story. The voice is shaking. "'I am not legally bound to anyone, at least, but why do you ask?' She looks me square in the face as she speaks, with a touch of haughtiness I never saw in her before. "'Perhaps the great relief I feel, the sense of joy at knowing she is free, speaks out of my face, for hers flushes, and she drops her eyes. Her lips tremble. I don't look at her again, but I can see her all the same. After a while, she says, "'I half intended to tell you something about myself this evening, "'and now I must. "'Let us go in. "'I shall come down to the sitting-room after your supper.' "'She takes a long look at the river and the inn "'as if fixing the place in her memory. "'It strikes me with a chill that there is a good-bye in her gaze. "'Her eyes rest on me a moment as they come back. "'There is a sad look in their grey clearness. "'She swings her little grey gloves in her hand as we walk back.' I can hear her walking up and down overhead, how tired she will be, and how slowly the time goes. I am standing at one side of the window when she enters. She stands at the other, leaning her head against the shutter with her hands clasped before her. I can hear my own heart beating, and I fancy hers as well, through the stillness. The suspense is fearful. At length she says, "'You have been a long time out of England.' "'You don't read the papers?' "'No.' A pause. I believe my heart is beating inside my head. "'You asked me if I was a free woman. I don't pretend to misunderstand why you asked me. I am not a beautiful woman. I never was. But there must be something about me. There is in some women essential femininity, perhaps, that appeals to all men. What I read in your eyes I have seen in many men's before.' "'but before God I never tried to rouse it. "'Today,' and now she was sobbing, "'I can say I am free. "'Yesterday morning I could not. "'Yesterday my husband gained his case and divorced me.' "'She closes her eyes and draws in her underlip "'to stop it from quivering. "'I want to take her in my arms, but I'm afraid to. "'I did not ask you any more than if you were free. "'No,' "'but I'm afraid you don't quite take in the meaning. "'I did not divorce my husband. "'He divorced me. "'He got a decree, Nisi. "'Do you understand now? 
She is speaking with difficulty. Do you know what that implies? I can't stand her face any longer. I take her hands. They're icy cold, and I hold them tightly. Yes, I know what it implies. That is, I know the legal and social conclusion to be drawn from it, if that is what you mean. But I never asked you for that information. I have nothing to do with your past. You did not exist for me before the day we met on the river. I take you from that day, and I ask you to marry me. I felt her tremble, and her hands get suddenly warm. She turns her head and looks at me long and searchingly, and then she says, Please sit down. I want to say something. I obey, and she comes and stands next to the chair. I can't help it. I reach up my arm, but she puts it gently down. No, you must listen without touching me. I shall go back to the window. I don't want to influence you a bit by any personal magnetism I possess. I want you to listen. I have told you he divorced me. The co-respondent was an old friend, a friend of my childhood, of my girlhood. He died just after the first application was made, luckily for me. He would have considered my honor before my happiness. I did not defend the case. It wasn't likely. Ah, if you knew all. He proved his case, given clever counsel, willing witnesses to whom you make it worth while, and no defense. Divorce is always attainable, even in England. But remember, I figure as an adulteress in every English-speaking paper. If you buy last week's evening papers, do you remember the day I was in town? I nod. You will see a sketch of me in that day's issue. Someone, perhaps he, must have given it. It was from an old photograph. I bought one at Victoria as I came out. It is funny, and now she gave an hysterical laugh, to buy a caricature of one's own poor face at a news stall. Yet in spite of that, I have felt glad. The point for you is that I made no defense to the world, and, with a lifting of her head, I will make no apology, no explanation, no denial to you, now or ever. I'm very desolate, and your attention came very warm to me. But I don't love you. Perhaps I could learn to, and now her face colored, for what you have said tonight, and it is because of that I tell you to weigh what this means. Later, when your care for me will grow into habit, you may chafe at my past. It is from that that I would save you now. I hold out my hands, and she comes and puts them aside, and takes me by the beard, and turns up my face, and scans it earnestly. She must have been deceived a good deal. I let her do as she pleases. It is the wisest way with women, and it is good to have her touch me in that way. She seems satisfied. She stands leaning against the arm of the chair and says, I must learn first to think of myself as a free woman again. It almost seems wrong today to talk like this. Can you understand that feeling? I nod, yes. Next time, I must be sure, and you must be sure. She lays her fingers on my mouth as I'm about to protest. Shh! You shall have a year to think. If you repeat then what you have said today, I shall give you your answer. You must not try to find me. I have money. If I am living, I will come here to you. If I'm dead, you will be told of it. In the year between, I shall look upon myself as belonging to you, 
and render an account, if you wish, of every hour. You will not be influenced by me in any way, and you will be able to reason it out calmly. If you think better of it, don't come. I feel there would be no use trying to move her. I simply kiss her hands and say, As you will, dear woman, I shall be here. We don't say any more. She sits down on a footstool with her head against my knee, and I just smooth it. When the clock strikes ten through the house, she rises, and I stand up. I see that she has been crying quietly. Poor, lonely little soul. I lift her off her feet and kiss her, and stammer out my sorrow at losing her. And she is gone. Next morning the little maid brought me an envelope from the lady, who left by the first train. It held a little gray glove. That is why I carry it always, and why I haunt the inn and never leave it for longer than a week. It's why I sit and dream in the old chair that has a ghost of her presence always. It's why I dream of the spring to come with that mayfly on the wing, and the young summer when midges dance, and the trout are growing fastidious, and that time when she will come to me across the meadow grass through the silver haze as she did before, come with her gray eyes shining to exchange herself for her little gray glove. Thanks for joining us for 1001 Greatest Love Stories. If you enjoy our stories, if you enjoyed today's story, please do send us a review, Apple listeners. We would appreciate that very much. It's 1001 Greatest Love Stories. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new story. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. (music) 